Welcome to Sounding Off with Kim Munson. This is our podcast that complements the Kim Munson Show. Uh, we look at these issues as freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something is a good idea, you should not have to force people to do this. And there's so much going on out there that we really need to delve into these subjects uh, even more. And hence, Sounding Off with Kim Munson was born. You can find that at my website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we are an independent voice. We do appreciate your contributions to support our independent voice as well. And on the line with me is Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. He is a commentator, classicist, a military historian, author, and he is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. And we actually have a fan club, I think, in my family uh, for you, Dr. Hansen. You are such an important voice, an important uh, thinker in America today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to talk a bit about Trumpism. Uh, you had written a book um, oh, several years ago, The Case for Trump. And when we see what happened in this election, it was actually rather remarkable. 75 plus million Americans um, went out and voted for President Trump. And basically, after Joe Biden was announced uh, the winner of the election, uh, there were many on both sides of the aisle that, that said that Trump was disgraced, that he was going to go away. And you've written a piece that I found in the Mercury News uh, just recently that I thought was very interesting. So uh, let's, let's start there. What do you think? Uh, Trumpism without Trump, is that possible? Uh, well, I don't think it is now, right at this moment. He lost some support. He, he won the election, excuse me, he won the election in 2016 with about 90% of the Republican Party, and he lost the election in 2020 with about 96% of the Republican Party of voters. So he did better with the Republican Party. Now, according to polls, he, he lingers about 70 to 75%. He seems to be hurt a little bit that fall off because he pushed the objection, say, beyond December 11th electoral, uh, the choice of the electors and the capital, right? But that all being said, uh, he's in a position now that he will determine, at least for the next year or two, who will or will not be a candidate, uh, an early candidate for the presidency. People like Nikki Haley, who had thought she could distance herself from potential rivals by attacking him that kind of blew up and she went back she tried to go back and make amends. so why is he still a force and i think there's a lot of reasons one he's not tweeting he's not posting he's banned for life and that had the ironic or unintended effect from the left but he's not commenting he's not distra- he's not making any distractions from the actual news cycle and the news cycle is very bad right now for Joe Biden, at least among independents and conservatives, whether it's the border or whether his cognitive issues or whether his taking credit for things that come. That angers a lot of people. And then more importantly, I think his issues, these four or five signature issues that he grafted onto a traditional Republican agenda, you know, uh, optional wars in the Middle East that didn't pencil out cost to benefit going to end uh, bringing back industry manufacturing to the interior of the country through tax incentives and an end to offshoring and outsourcing that still is a good issue closing the border making immigration legal measure diverse meritocratic I think that's still there 
getting telephone symmetrical trade in China. Nobody's said we don't want to do that. In fact, the Democratic Party um, has tried to appropriate his China policy, his trade policy, etc. So I, it's going to be hard to imagine. Now, on the other hand, very quickly, he's seventy. He's seventy-four. He's going to be seventy-eight, and he would be the second oldest person to be president um, at that age. And while he shows no signs of cognitive challenge, we don't know how he's going to feel in in four years. We don't know what the midterm. If the Republicans take back the House and Trump plays senior statesman, and they take back the Senate in two years and he's going to be very difficult for anybody to defeat. With, uh, it seems like the Democrats are uh, on uh, warp speed uh, as far as putting it through legislation, all kinds of different policies, of course, all these executive orders, really working to uh, roll back the accomplishments that were made under the Trump presidency. Even out here in Colorado, uh, gas prices are up probably 30 to 40 percent, depending on which gas station you go to, that hurts the people at the bottom of the economic ladder the most, the people that need that mobility to get to a job, they need that flexibility. It really hurts them. And I'm just astonished that within basically two months, we're seeing our energy costs go up so much, Dr. Hansen. Yeah, and that was, you know, the Biden administration is working as hard as it's it can if they had nothing to do with that, but it did because everybody knew that the basics of the pre-COVID Trump economy were sound and they would kick in again as the virus started to wane and starting to wane and were poised for an economic recovery. Nobody, Biden's not going to be responsible. It's going to be an organic process predicated on pent-up demand for a year and a lot of funny money, three or four or five trillion dollars printed to, you know, to prime the economy. So any cognitively capable president would have said, you know what, gas prices are going to go up because people are going to drive more, they're going to get out of their homes, so let's make sure we got Keystone. It's, the issue's already been adjudicated, whether you, you're for it or against it, it's, in, it's being constructed. And then secondly, let's make sure, whether you like it or not, that we honor our federal contracts uh, uh, for gas and oil exploration and give new ones. And uh, instead, what did he do? He canceled or he, he cut back on uh, the leasing on federal lands. He canceled the Keystone Pipeline he announced in 2050. That is, in a mere 30 years, we would have no uh, fossil fuels. And the result was he sent a message to the petroleum, and he's going to go after Anwar next. Uh, he sent a message to the petroleum industry, your days are numbered. So even though we have idle rigs right now, and a lot of people in the gas and oil business can make a lot of money, they're not they're not fully utilizing them because they're tentative. They don't know what he's going to do, and the result is suddenly we have too many consumers for gas and oil and not enough supply, even though we're sitting on the richest deposits in the world. Bad policy, bad policy decisions ultimately really hurt everyday hardworking Americans. And uh, this this push to get rid of fossil fuels, when we saw what happened down in Texas when they had the deep freeze, it really became a mess 
because of uh, their energy mix re- with renewables. When the um, windmills froze and there was snow on the uh, solar panels, it seems like we as Americans would uh, pause and take a rethink on these policies because I think more people are paying attention now, Dr. Hansen. Yeah, I do too. And I think that a lot of people uh, got hooked on the ideas in, in the energy sector that natural gas, for example, with a clean burning fuel, and it, it had the ironic effect of saying to the world, we're not going to join the Paris Climate Accord and be subject to uh, loss of sovereignty and international audit of American energy use. But through transformation to natural gas, we're going to beat you as far as uh, reducing our carbon imprint. And that's what we did under Trump. And so it's a larger question. And I think the larger philosophical issue is Joe Biden came in and he was obsessed on Trump, the person, the tweets, uh, the unorthodox manner in which he had you know, treated people or did things, but he didn't look at what Trump actually did. If you look at the Middle East, it was stable. Iran isolated. The Arab moderate regimes in Israel had a new alliance. If you look at China, we had the framework of containing China and building strong alliances with Australia, the Philippines, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, on the basis of symmetric, symmetrical trade and symmetrical uh, following of international commercial accords. If you look at Europe, it was stable. They may not have liked it, but the fact of the matter was NATO countries were now starting to contribute what they had promised. And then here at home, nobody thought you could get vaccinations in 10 months. He did that. So all Biden had to do was either not mention Trump or give him bipartisan praise and then continue a lot of his policy. Instead, what has he done? He's tried just because they have Trump's fingerprints on them, he's tried to overturn them. And then he's gone to ridiculous lengths to demonize him and give him no credit to the point where he says at one point, there were no vaccinations when I took the presidency, even though we have a picture of him on December 21st getting vaccinated. And there were a million people uh, vaccinated the day he was inaugurated. And there had been for, you know, for over a month. And so that's where we are now. And I, I just like to add a footnote is that the... I kind of wrote about this, and, and it didn't get a very good reception, but I didn't agree with the conventional wisdom that good old Joe Biden from Scranton would be a caretaker president, and uh, he had made a deal with the left, and then now that he would be president, he would be a moderating influence upon them, and at least for four years, they would bide their time. I, I thought, rather, that he was cognitively challenged that he did not want to, he wasn't up to fighting the AOCs, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warrens, the Kamala Harris's. He was going to give in to them, and being a one-term president, which he will be, liberated. And he doesn't care about even the midterms. He wants to go down and pre- as the most progressive president since FDR. He's no longer the understudy of Barack Obama. He's an activist, hardcore leftist. And I know that people don't quite believe that. But if you look at what he's done in his first, what he will do in his first hundred days, it's the most radical agenda we've seen in my lifetime. Dr. Hansen, as I think about our children and our grandchildren, I... uh, 
I am so concerned about where we are for America because I see these this hardcore leftist agenda as very destructive to the American idea. And when we look at the World Economic Forum and their forecast for 2030, uh, one of their things is, is uh, their goals is that uh, basically Western civilization will, will crumble. I mean, that's basically what they say. And that's beyond belief to me when we, we see who goes to Davos and all of these different titans of industry and, and leaders supposedly from all over the world why aren't our American companies standing up for our Western values? I don't understand it. Well, we have to realize that we're at the greatest stage of affluence and leisure in the history of any civilization. And it's all because of the constitutional checks and balances that give us stability and freedom in our constitution and our adherence to free market economics and private property private enterprise. That's why, where we are. And so that has created, in a globalized world, the most successful 50 million people on the planet in history. And they are they live in the two coastal strips of the United States. They live in pockets in Europe. They live in westernized Japan, uh, parts of Taiwan, Australia, the former British Commonwealth. And those people, the elites, they're not just in the corporate world. Remember, they're in the military. They're in academia, they're in foundations, they're in entertainment, they're in Hollywood, they're on Wall Street. And those people feel that they sort of beat the system. They have such wealth and such privilege that they feel bad about it. They feel what, no matter what they say or do, it's not going to affect them or their children. They want their kids to get into Harvard and there's uh, affirmative action is, t- is you know, peeing away aging it qualified applicants, they don't care. They can always use their influence to get their kids in. If they're for the teachers' unions and they don't like charter schools, it doesn't matter. It's not going to affect them. They're going to be kids. They're going to be in prep school. If they make fun of a wall along the Mexican border and say walls don't work, if you're Mark Zucker, you will have a wall around your home. And so that type of ideology is what characterizes gobbles. And it's almost like a medieval expiation and exemption or penance or indulgence, they feel that by going to Davos or virtue signaling on climate change or race or identity politics, whatever the particular popular issue is, that abstract support then justifies the way that they live and, they, and their freedom of guilt in a psychological sense. And you can see it every day. Yesterday, John Kerry, who has lectured us again and again on the Neanderthal Trump lack of adherence to masks, was on a first-class flight with no mask on. He Two years ago, he was caught flying his uh, private jet when he was lecturing us on his carbon uh, print. And uh, we see it on identity politics. We see very, very affluent people like Oprah and Meghan Markle and Prince Harry lecturing us on a racist America, one billionaire talking to a multimillionaire, you know, five miles apart, one person having a $90 million state, the other two with a $14 million state. And we're supposed to feel that if you're a forklift driver in Bakersfield, somehow you're responsible for racism that hurt those people. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what this elite does. And one of the reasons they hated Donald Trump was he was appeal, he was able to appeal 
not just to the white working class, but also to a large number of Mexican-Americans and African-American males especially, that they had class interests that were superseding race. And that got the left very, very frightened. You know, you pick up 40% of the Hispanic vote in Florida or 35% of it in California, That's that tells you that there's something there that the Republican Party or conservatives could work on, and that is to appeal to people on their class interest, jobs, cheap energy, good infrastructure, good schools, and make race and identity, you know, not essential to your persona the way it should be, the way that Martin Luther King said it's the content of our character that matters. Well, and we see this movement to uh, to put us back into groups instead of of individuals, and um, you know, again, that's antithetical to the the American idea. I I want to shift just a little bit for the balance of the podcast, and that is regarding censorship. And Dr. Hansen, Colorado is really the petri dish for things that are then pushed out to the rest of the. Uh, the country. And somebody told me recently that the demographics in Colorado are such that if you can carry four or five, six of these metro counties, then you carry the state. And so the left, the radical activist left, has focused on Colorado, and we now have a very radical uh, legislature and governor. And uh, interestingly enough, the HR1, which is the, the uh, I call it the vote, or the, dilute, the diluting or the dilution and nullification of your vote act uh, in Washington, D.C. that, uh, that the Congress is, is uh, trying to pass, uh, is a lot of that stuff is already occurring right here in Colorado. But on the censorship side, uh, there is a, a Democrat, uh, let's see, I think she's a senator, and uh, she is actually going to run for Congress. And I think this is going to go to the kill committee. I don't think that it's actually going to happen yet, but many times we see these pieces of legislation that are floated out there to get people to start talking about it. And it's called the Digital Communications Regulation. And basically it says that if uh, there is a digital communications platform that is operating in Colorado, they have to register with the state of Colorado. If uh, they don't, then that is a class two misdemeanor punishable by a fine of up to $5,000 each day. And some of the things that they will be looking at is uh, those that might disseminate intentional disinformation, conspiracy theories, fake news, authorize or encourage or carry out violations of users' privacy, also asking about election integrity, a whole variety of things. This is terrifying to me, this censorship that's going on, uh, Dr. Hansen. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you can be sure that the Colorado law will not go after people who promulgated the Covington kids' hope the Russian collusion hoax, the Jesse Smollett attack hoax, the Duke Lacrosse hoax, and uh, the capital idea that people were arrested using or possessing firearms in a rotunda. That was, all of those were hoaxes. But what we're getting at is not so much censorship of expression, but censorship of what is being conservative expression. It's asymmetrical. That's why conservatives are not pushing this stuff. Not that they didn't do it. I mean, during the McCarthy period, 70 years ago, there were a lot of uh, Republicans that tried to censor 
speech, but that's not the case the last 50 years. And so what is the left, why are they doing this? And they're doing this because if you look at their positions on issues, whether it's radical late-term abortion or whether it's this woke re-education or whether it's open borders, they don't have 51%. And so they try to approach that dilemma in two ways. They want to change the demography of the United States by allowing a million or two million people to come in every year through illegal auspices. And they want to censor ideas, expressions that don't uh, dovetail with their own views. And they do it in two ways. They try to use government bureaucracies that are pretty much left-wing and innately in the way that you just described. We're doing it here in California with state board of education mandated ethnic anti-racism curriculum where everybody has to participate. And they're doing it in the private realm. So an Amazon will take down, let's say, when Harry became Sally and and encounter book and can't see it. Anything that questions transgenderism uh, on a Facebook post will be taken down in a way that Mein Kampf or Hitler won't. And the argument they're using is in the private sphere, and I'm speaking as a Stanford a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Professor, where recently Neil Ferguson, Scott Atlas, and I were brought up on charges that our expression could lead to violence. And in my case, it was, I said, 100 million mail-in ballots uh, raised issues of authenticity and the ability to check the veracity of those. And if the error rate had gone down to 0.4 rather than the traditional 4%. And that, therefore, I was responsible for five people dying in the Capitol. Just as Scott Atlas was responsible for 500 people dying of COVID. And of course, these were fantasies, but it's a private university, so we had to address that. And the same thing is true of Amazon. Their new theory is something like this in the private sector, because they're, they're, they operate, they, the left, operate monopolies. And they say, we're all for freedom, freedom of speech. Absolutely. We just don't believe in freedom of reach. So Uh if you want to have, if you put your book on Amazon, that's our company. We don't have to put it on. Go to another place. But every time you have a online book dealer, Amazon puts them out of business. So they said, if you want to, you don't want to be on Twitter, you think that we're biased, go somewhere else. People go to Parler, and what happens? They destroy it. And they, they take away the apps, Apple does, and Google do, and Amazon, so you can't get on it. Because they're 19th century cartels, just like Standard Oil was, just like the railroads were. And they use the same argument. It's almost the argument, to be frank, of the racist in the pre-civil rights movement. When you were African American and you went into a lunch counter in Alabama and you said, I want a hamburger. They said, you know what, you have perfect freedom to go do that. Now, we're the only lunch counter in town in this small town, but we're not going to serve you. So you're free to go somewhere else. Well, there was no outdoor else to go, whether it was a motel. And we said you can't do that. You cannot do that. Private enterprise cannot discriminate on the basis of race, and they can't discriminate on the basis of ideology or religion. And yet here they are doing it because they do control social media. They do control the major networks. They have most of the cable news outlets. They control uh, corporate uh, outreach, public relations. You look at the NBA, it's complete. So they have monopolies in these key areas, and they're saying, we believe in freedom, 
And if you don't like what we're doing by censoring you, I suggest you start your own NBA, your own Hollywood, your own Amazon, and, and yet the minute anybody tries it, they use government and their own resources to squash all competition. Dr. Hansen, what to do? What should we do? Well, I think the main thing is we have to have a change of uh, spirit, ideology, attitude. So when they come after you, and all of us have a rendezvous with this cancel culture, according to our station. You can be a plumber, and, and you can be an electrician, you can be a teacher, you can be a lawyer, it doesn't matter. They're Jacobins in the French Revolutionary Reign of Terror cycle. They're going to go after everybody because they need to. If they, They're sort of like the virus. If they don't find a new host, they'll peter out. If they don't find a new victory that proves race, sexism, and all this stuff, then the, nobody listens to them, and perhaps no clothes, they're naked. And so all of us have to say when they go after you and say, I'm not going to be canceled. I'm not going to apologize. I have no, I know some, it's more difficult than some because they're more vulnerable, but each in our own way have to find a way according to our own situation and landscape, how to resist that. And I think if people do it, they're going to find out that they have no support. And uh, you can already see it happening. There are, people at the New York Times that were fired or let go that are angry. There are professors that have been under attack that are angry. Even Bill Maher, a hardcore leftist, is now saying, wait a minute, this is getting cannibalistic. And you saw when they bumped up against Joe Biden, Tara Reid did, 30-year accusations that sounded much more convincing than anything they do with Brett Kavanaugh, but all of a sudden the left said, no, no, wait, 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 we can't do it. You see it with Mario Cuomo. I don't know whether he's guilty or not of all of these sexual indiscretions, but there's surely more proof of that than Brett Kavanaugh, and yet the left is saying, wait, 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 let's take it. So they understand that they've created a Frankenstein monster, but all of us have to destroy it, this racist, uh, anti-racist movement, that's what it is. And each according, as I said, to our own station. And we each can do this. Uh, kind of the final thought is... I am grateful uh, for the clarity that came out of the Donald Trump presidency, the clarity on all of these issues. So much of this was percolating underneath the surface. And I remember being in conversations with, with people, and I, it's like there's something that's just not quite right. And, and, you know, subtle little censorship, oh, we won't talk about politics. Or, And I'm grateful that we have clarity of these issues because that seems like that is the first step in uh, in fighting back on uh, those that are trying to destroy the American idea. Your final thought, Dr. Hansen. Yeah, I think that one of the underappreciated effects of the Trump administration, as you say, was that he was so controversial and so blunt that he brought out the inner left, whether it was the White House press corps or whether it was Silicon Valley, I would almost say he brought out the inner fascist and this whole hardcore leftist movement. They showed us what they really want. Now you can see it during the Biden administration. Joe Biden is no, not old Joe Biden from Scranton anymore. He's what he always wanted to be. And what he always wanted to be was completely open borders, indoctrination in our schools, uh, cutting back on private enterprises, the fossil fuel industry. All of that was below the surface. Trump. They, because they despised him so much, whether it was the Russian collusion hoax or the Ukraine phone call, they really showed who they were, and now we know what, who they are. 
They're not liberal Democrats. They're not classical liberals. They're not even progressive. They're hardcore leftists that do not believe in free speech and expression, and they don't believe in the Constitution as it's written. Well, uh, and I guess the last question, are you optimistic? What do you think? I'm guardedly optimistic. I think the Republican Party uh, has to realize that it's a party of ideas, and it has to appeal to this new demography. So I, I think if people are not condescending, but they're earthy, and Trump is earthy, they can appeal to poor whites that can appeal that had not been participating in the process in key states, uh, uh, Mexican American people, African American, Asian. All of these people have the same concerns as you and I, even if we're different. And and so many of them are the stalwarts of the conservative movement. And I think that is the future of the Republican Party. The future of the Republican Party. Even though I have very close friends in the corporate world that are golfing, the Mitt Romneys, the John McCain wing, that's not the future. That is an inert, dead-end cul-de-sac. The idea that a bunch of moderate, rhino, wealthy people who golf and, you know, jet around are going to tell everybody what it's really, what's really good for them, it's not going to happen anymore. It's got to become a, a, a workers' populist, inclusive uh, party of the middle class. And I think that's what makes me optimistic. I think there's the beginning of that. Well, uh, certainly, I I appreciate that as well. I I agree with you totally on that. That it's we're calling it the grassroots. It's everyday people. They're paying attention. Uh, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, it is such a pleasure to get to visit with you on this uh, Sounding Off with Kim Munson podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, I think that we have uh, many members of your fan club at my household. Well, thank you. Okay. And my friends, uh, I so appreciate you joining us on this podcast, and God bless you, and God bless America.